what is up, New Journey? Wow. I guess I need to tone it down a little. Grab your Bibles, your devices, whatever it is you're going to use to look at God's Word this morning. Open it up to Judges chapter 10 as we talk about minor matters. If you are a first-time, second-time guest with us, we would love to receive a Connect card from you. The best place to deposit that is at our new at New Journey desk. Uh, here we really believe that it's really important at a desk like that that we put our most attractive people. So today we have our most attractive person in the church, uh, Miss Angie Edge, my beautiful bride. Uh, so you can't miss her with her summer hat on. I told her she looks like the first lady of New Journey this morning. And so she is pumped to have it on. She looks beautiful. But we would love to get a Connect card from you. We have a gift that we'd love to give you if this is your first or second time. Um, you know, in the theater, uh, they have a, a saying, a famous quote, that there are no small parts, only small actors. And it's their way of uh, emphasizing the fact that every single role in a film, uh, a musical, or a play is really critically important to the overall quality of the production. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. One would be Madame Morrible from Wicked, if anybody has seen it. She appears very briefly in the performance, but really the, com the entire trajectory uh, of the show and the play uh, really moves in a whole different direction after her appearance. Uh, I'll give you one that's maybe more contemporary. What about Katniss Everdeen, right? Would Katniss have ever become the Mockingjay without her dressmaker, Senna, right? He makes a very brief appearance on screen, but he leaves a big impact on Katniss and allows her to leave a big impact on the citizens of the capital. Uh, in the scriptures, uh, there are smaller books and there are larger books. Uh, there is a genre of, scri uh, of scripture known as prophetic literature. And within the prophetic uh, genre, there are two groups of people or two groups of books. There are the major prophets and the minor prophets. And that's sort of a misleading way of describing them because the minor prophets, the minor prophetic books, are no less important than the major prophets and their books who have names that we know. Men like, say, Isaiah and Jeremiah. But they are called minor prophets, not because their material is less important, but they are called minor prophets because while Isaiah and Ezekiel have enough words in them to make them as thick as, say, a phone book, the minor prophets' writings look more like pamphlets when compared to theirs, right? That's the idea. They just didn't write quite as many chapters, quite as many verses, right? Isaiah wrote like he got paid by the word. Right, while I'll say Haggai, one of the minor prophets, wrote like he had a character limit on Twitter. Right, that's that's why they're called minor prophets because they just didn't write as much down. Jonah, for instance, would even be one of these minor prophets to sort of illustrate for you that they are no less important, no less critical to the unfolding of God's story of redemption. Jonah is a minor prophet, yet no one here doubts that his story is perhaps as well known as any other story in all of Scripture. Right, I mean, getting swallowed by giant fish is no minor incident. Yet because his story only takes four chapters to unpack, he is relegated to the category of being a minor prophet, right? Well, today, the reason why I'm stressing all of this is that we're going to read about a few judges who are known as minor judges. This is what scholars call them. And they are called minor judges because the amount of Scripture that is dedicated to them in the book of Judges is minuscule when compared to some of the other judges. But we need to go ahead and embrace that despite this, despite the fact that there are very few verses given to them, their effect and their leadership were anything but minor to those who stood to benefit from it and flourish 
under the umbrella of their rule, right? So in other words, they may be minor to us, but they were real judges ruling Israel during a real time with real people who stood to flourish or be successful underneath their rule if they did a good job. And they were anything but minor to those people, even if they're minor to us. All right, so let's read this, Judges chapter 10. We'll read the first four or five verses, and then we'll come back and uh, look at Judges chapter 12 and share, look at some other minor judges in a few moments. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead, and Jair died and was buried in Kimon. So let's look at really this idea of what is it that would make a person major or what is it that would make a person minor. So I'm just kind of calling this the making of major and minor. And I think the very first thing we need to note is that major and minor are really a matter of perspective, right? Like what's the difference between minor and major surgery? It's minor surgery when it's on someone else. It's major surgery when it's on you or someone you love, right? A tonsillectomy is a minor procedure until it's your kid going back into the operating room. Right? That's the way it works. It's a matter of perspective. Well, Tola and Jair were minor judges, but their time as judges mattered a lot. Right? They were major figures to those who stood to soar or suffer underneath the umbrella of their leadership. And we know that their time as judges were both uh, peaceful and prosperous because we note that in the text there are no threats to neutralize. There's no foreign oppressors or wars with them, so it was a time of peace. We know that it was a prosperous time because of the mention of Jair and how his son, he had 30 sons, and every single one of them had his own ride and had his own place to stay, right? Now you say, well, how does that tell you it's a time of prosperity? Well, um, think about it like this. I'm feeding one teenage son, and it's about to bankrupt me. Can you imagine 30 at one time, Right? He just got his driver's license. My car insurance just tripled. I sold a few kidneys to get, you know, this quarterly premium paid, right? Can you imagine 30 at one time? Listen, kids are expensive. They are worth every penny as a sweet gift of God's grace to us. But they are expensive and they force you to stretch dollars and coupon clip and sneak food into the movies, Right? <laughs> Keep in mind also that in the ancient world, it mentions 30 sons. Keep in mind that in the ancient world, sons were more expensive to have than daughters because a daughter would one day fetch a bride price, right? She would leave the family estate. She would become her new husband and his family's problem uh, to feed and take care of. But sons didn't do that. Sons stayed home. And they worked the family farm until dad died and gave them their own track of land. And then many still stuck around. On top of that, they were expected to meet a girl and want to marry her. And her and his mom and daddy were expected to help him pay the bride price that her daddy set for him. Sons were more expensive to have than daughters. For Jair to not just have 30 sons, and we don't know how many daughters he had, but he had 30 sons. And we're told that they all had their own ride, their own donkey. And they all had their own house to stay in. This means that his rule was not just peaceful, but it was prosperous. And if it was pro prosperous for him, it was presumably prosperous for all Israel. 
So Tola and Jair. And then there's a few other minor judges. Shamgar, he gets one verse at the end of Judges chapter 3, along with Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon, who we'll read about here in just a few minutes in Judges chapter 12. They are called minor judges, but I would contend that this is just a matter of perspective. They were not minor to those who benefited from their rule. I would also argue that in this particular instance, this is not cutting them down, but it's actually a compliment to call them a minor judge. Let me explain what I mean. I think when you think about major and minor in terms of leadership, it's usually a matter of whether your rule, your time in office was characterized by pandemonium or peace. Right? There are uh, these men, first of all, we also want to note that they're only minor because of who they stand next to. They're sort of sandwiched right in between Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And let's just admit, everyone looks small when you compare them to a giant, right? I look tall until you put me next to Shaquille O'Neal, right? Everyone looks small when compared to giants. So most of the reason these major judges stand out, or most of the reason why they're called major is because it takes a long time to unpack their story, and they stand out for reasons that we must admit are not all good. The reasons why the major judges stand out are not all good. Consider Samson, maybe the best known of the judges, right? And he is known as much for his weakness for wild women as he is his Herculean strength, right? The reasons why these major judges are known are not all good. Think about it like this. There have been 46 U.S. presidents, including our current one, President Biden. How many could you name? 46, how many could you name? I think we even have a list of all the, the presidents. I think there's a picture that they may put up on the screen. Now, you can even try to memorize that. How many could you name? There have been 39 since 1980. You can't, if I told you that you couldn't name Reagan, Bush, uh, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and, and Trump, and then Biden, if I took those seven away, how many could you name then? Less than 10? Less than five? Right? Let's just be honest. These men were all president of the United States of America. Each of them contributed something to this nation we salute and we offer pledges of allegiance to and we have been raised to believe is the greatest place on the earth and maybe ever in the history of the world. The great democratic experiment of the United States of America, I think we can all agree at this point, has been so far an overwhelming, raging success. And each of these men who served as president had something to do with that success, yet most of us could not name more than 15% of them unless we're planning on being on Jeopardy one day or we're a history geek, right? It's fair to say then that we have major presidents and minor ones, but the ones we call minor ones are only minor because of, first of all, who they stand next to and are compared to in history, and secondly, because their time in office was not characterized by chaos and dissension and war. Somehow they managed to survive their term of office without getting assassinated or launching a world war. <laughs> That's the reason why we don't know their names. The major judges had more notoriety because of the hoopla and the controversy which occurred while they judged Israel. Would you know George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln if not for the American Revolution and the Civil War? Would you know FDR if not for the Great Depression and World War II? Would you know Harry Truman if not for dropping the A-bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Would you know Kennedy if he had not been assassinated? Right? That's the point I'm making. There was pandemonium during their rule. That's why we remember them. 
right? That's why we remember them. Chaos, controversy, getting killed, that makes a president's term, more historically speaking, interesting, right? And therefore memorable, right? So really being major means that you're remembered. And sometimes being remembered is not all that it's cracked up to be, right? Again, it comes down to why are you remembered? Human beings are complex. And so are their stories in their totality. And the truth of the matter is the only way to make any human being. And I think this is timely just as a practical piece of advice in a time when we're attempting to sort of reframe history. To make any human being totally into a hero means you must gloss over the grimier parts of their past. Right? Gideon is complex. Samson is complex, and yet God used them to save and rule and deliver and judge Israel. Right? These men are major judges, and they are renowned, but I think it's important to ask a really critical question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? The fact that they're remembered, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? And I think we need to learn to see this. We need to learn to see conciseness as a compliment. Right? And here's why. Because faults and flaws take a lot of words to explain. Faithfulness doesn't. You ever thought about that? Faults and flaws take a lot of time to explain. Just like getting more press coverage in our world doesn't mean you're necessarily doing a good job. Right? Just because you're in the news cycle, it doesn't mean you're doing a good job. Just because you get more ink on the pages of Scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing either. Right? The quality of your faithfulness in Scripture is not measured in how many verses are dedicated to your story. Often it's actually the complete opposite. The more complex, the more complicated, the more confusing it is that God would use a person like that, the more words the Word of God must use to unpack their story. Flaws and fallenness take a lot of words to explain, but faithfulness doesn't. Let me just illustrate that in just simple terms. When you ask somebody if they did something that they were supposed to do, and they say that they did, the conversation's short, is it not? You ask, they say yes, you say thanks. Conversation over, right? That's the way it works. Did you take out the trash? Yes, thank you. Right? Did you pay the power bill? Yes, thank you. If, however, you ask, hey, you were supposed to do this, did you do it? And the answer is no. The conversation lasts a lot longer, doesn't it? Right? They say no, you ask, why not? And then you get some great, tall, bunion-esque tale about all the travails and trials they went through trying to buy toilet paper on their lunch break today. Right? Did you buy the toilet paper on lunch break today? And then you hear a pause, and then it's, well, what had happened was... Right? And then you get this story. It takes a lot of words to explain why you didn't do something you were supposed to do. Explanations only exist because failure does. Excuses only exist because sin does. When someone is faithful, when somebody is obedient to God, can we just admit that we don't need a whole lot of words to describe their life? God said to do this, they were faithful, and they did it. That's all we need. That's all we need. And you wonder why else do we not get more about these men compared to the other men. I think another really important thing for us to remember is the purpose of the word of God. 
The Word of God is not there to tell us about human history. It's there to reveal to us who God is, who we are in light of who He is, but ultimately who He is. The Word of God is hell-bent on telling us that we are hell-bent, right? And this determined to ascribe glory to God, to describe the manifold perfections of His nature, not necessarily to tell us about all the imperfections of ours, Right? That's the purpose of the Word of God. So that's why we don't get as many words. But I also think we need to see that the greatest compliment that the world and the Word of God can give us is to sum up our lives simply and succinctly. Now, I'm going to really press into this for a few minutes. I hope you'll hear me. There's this quote that's attributed to a man named Count Zinzendorf. That's an awesome name. He lived in Germany a long time ago in the 1700s. And I think it captures the essence of what we should hope would be written about our lives which is going to be very similar to what is written about Tola and Jair and, 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 and all the men that we're going to read about in Judges chapter 12. Zinzendorf was born, interestingly enough, into a family of nobles, hence the name Count, right? He was also a very devout Christian, and he founded a church group known as the Moravians in the early 1700s in Germany. And because he was a count, he was expected to take all these aristocratic uh, uh, journeys around Germany and make trips and things of that nature. And so he's on one of these trips, and he meets a converted slave from the West Indies who is looking for somebody to go back into his homeland and preach the gospel to his countrymen. Zinzendorf races back home, begs men to go to immediately volunteer, and they become the first Moravian missionaries. I'm giving you a little church history lesson, but this matters. It's going somewhere. These are the first Protestant missionaries of the modern era. If you didn't know, you're in a Southern Baptist church. We don't swear allegiances to the Southern Baptists before Jesus, but we are a Southern Baptist church. And Southern Baptists like to say that William Carey, because he was a Southern Baptist, is the father of modern missionaries. That's not true. Zinzendorf sent his men out almost 60 years before William Carey ever even comes on the scene. Within two decades, more than 70 missionaries were sent out from this Moravian community in Germany uh, out of a community of less than 600 people. 70 missionaries. By the time Zinzendorf dies in 1760, the Moravians had sent out at least 200 and 26 missionaries. And I think we've got even a map, and, and maybe they'll pop that up, and it shows the Moravian missionary reach and the reason why that matters is because you need to understand if you're if you're in this building today it's very possible you're in this building there's a chain of events that traces itself back to some Moravian missionary coming to the United States of America in the mid to early 1700s right this is our history you ought to know that right but but so uh, Zinzendorf is remembered this is interesting Karl Barth if you know that name he's a philosopher and a theologian he called Zinzendorf perhaps the only genuine Christocentric person of the modern age. He saw him as the most Christ-centered person of the modern age. Scholar George Forrell put it more succinctly. I like this one. He called Zinzendorf the noble Jesus freak. That's awesome. Take that DC talk. <laughs> right? Seven people got that because they were around in the 90s. They get it, right? <laughs> Zinzendorf. In one of his addresses to the Moravians about the necessity of missions and taking the gospel around the world in spite of what anybody would understand would be their fears. Their fears of what would happen to them when they landed on foreign soil. Would the people that were there to share the gospel with, would they kill us to try and impress upon them the necessity of this? He told them that the sum of their life was to be this. And here's the quote. This was to be the sum of their life. 
to preach the gospel, to die, and then be forgotten. That's the point of our lives, to preach the gospel, share the gospel, to die, and then be forgotten. Is that the goal of your life? I mean, is it? Is that what you've been up to lately? Is that the mindset we're operating with on a daily basis? I am here until Christ returns or he calls me home to preach the gospel. And if he doesn't come before then, I will die. And everyone outside of my immediate family will probably never remember or know my name. Have you ever thought about the fact that we think about Billy Graham? But Billy Graham was greatly influenced, maybe even one to Christ through the ministry of an evangelist named Billy Sunday who was reached with the gospel by a guy named D.L. Moody. We know those names if you're kind of remotely familiar with church history. But who shared the gospel with D.L. Moody? We don't know that dude's name. But he shared the gospel. He died and he is forgotten. But his impact remains. That's the point. When you think about it, what better goal could we have in life than to live each day with gospel intentionality, die and be forgotten? So the question is this, what will be written on your epitaph? That's the little thing they write on your tombstone, your headstone. What's going to be written there? Here's some funny ones I found. If you don't think they're funny, that's okay. You're wrong. <laughs> he says, here's the first one, Josh. I think we may have these. It says, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. Ooh, it's okay. You, you, it's okay. Number two, I told you I was sick. <laughs> In Tombstone, Arizona, uh, there is one that says this, Jack Williams, he done his darndest. Right? I like what was said about Count Zinzendorf, noble Jesus freak. As I visualize my funeral one day, and I don't think we do this enough, we don't live like we're dying. I think about sometimes when I get off track in my priorities and what my day is supposed to be about, what my weeks are supposed to be about, I start reminding myself that one day I'm going to die. What do I want my wife and my children in particular to say as they stand around my casket? And if I'm not living to make those things happen, then I'm not living for the right things. And what I want my wife and my children to say the most is that I love Jesus Christ above all, and I love them and everything that I said and did every single day. Imperfectly, yes, but I love them and everything I did and said every single day. That's the point of my life. To preach, to live the gospel. But forgetting what you want other people to say when you die, maybe a better question to ask is, what do you want to hear from Jesus when you die? What do you want to hear from Jesus when you die? So let's talk now about this valueness, this value of faithfulness over fame. You know what the goal should be? To hear from Jesus? It's what the the manager said to his productive, fruitful servants in the parable of the talents, if you remember in Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You could argue that what Jesus just said was this. Way to go, my friend. Way to go. You lived. You shared the gospel faithfully. Now you're dead. Now enter into your eternal reward and be forgotten. Right? In a culture that is obsessed with fame, everybody's trying always to go viral. 
gain influence, we need to remember that God's value system does not mirror our own. We need to see that the world and life, we need to learn to see the world and life as he does, which means we must learn to value something that maybe we don't always value. We need to learn to value faithfulness over fame. Faithfulness over fame. Faithfulness over fame. You know, the Bible shows no interest in our image. You ever notice that? It shows no interest in our image. In the world, image is everything, but in the word, it's not. I think it's just one more example of how what is important in this world is inconsequential in the word of God. And we think, we think about these minor judges. We think, well, you know, the reason why they don't get more verses is because the things that they did weren't really that awesome or amazing. I push back against that. Shamgar, at the end of Judges chapter 3, he saved Israel, we're told, with a shepherd's staff that he turned into a deadly weapon. Now, we don't think Shamgar is that impressive, but I want you to think about what kind of beastly dude you got to be to kill hundreds of men with a pointy stick. That's an impressive dude. He gets one verse. He saved Israel. He died. He was forgotten. Tola, he judged Israel. And things went pretty good. There was nothing crazy to write about. Things were okay. And then he died and he was forgotten. Jair, he judged Israel. Things were not just peaceful but fairly prosperous while he ruled. And then he died and he has since been forgotten. You didn't know their names before you came in here today. To be honest with you, I don't know that I did before I started getting ready to preach this sermon. So that's not a knock on you. That's just reality. They've been forgotten. Later in Judges chapter 12, verses 8 through 15, we read of three other minor judges. We get Ibzan of Bethlehem. He judged Israel. He had 30 sons, 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. The 30 daughters, he, and then he brought in 30 daughters from outside of his clan for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. And then he died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him was Elon the Zebulonite who judged Israel 10 years. And then he died and he was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. And after him was Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons and he, who all rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. And then he died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim and the hill country of the Amalekites. So here's what we just read. Ibzan, was he an impressive dude? Well, he is clearly a foreign relations and a foreign policy guru. He creates all these alliances through the marriage of his sons and daughters with these foreign rulers and peoples. So his time was a time of great peace and prosperity. He provided peace through a policy of procreation, right? And you know what happened then? He died and he was forgotten. Elon was from Zebulon. That's it. That's all the scriptures say. I mean, when he was from Zebulon, is like the entirety of your Jeopardy clue, right? Two Jeopardy references in the same sermon. What am I doing here? You, you didn't amount to much, right? It doesn't seem like. But clearly, he was worth mentioning, and God used him to bless Israel. And then he died, and he was forgotten. And then there was Abdon, who set in motion, we're told, not just a decade of prosperity, but an economic upswing that created jobs and wealth for the next generation as well. We know that because it mentions how his grandsons were also able to ride on their own donkeys, right? Everybody did well. No fame, no notoriety. There were no paparazzi hiding in the bushes trying to take a picture of them. Every single one of them would have had less than 500 followers on social media. They judged Israel for 
uh, uh, varied amounts of time. Things ranged from okay to prosperous while they did that. And then guess what happened? They died and they were forgotten. But that doesn't mean that they weren't used by God in mighty ways while they ruled. And it doesn't mean that they were forgotten. Jesus never forgot them. We forgot them, but Jesus has never forgotten them, and he rewards their faithfulness. Now, this is a really important like, principle to sort of impress upon you. What we seek to do as Christians and as the church is a spiritual work, is it not? It's a spiritual work, ultimately. It's a work of the heart. And there's a lack of visibility to spiritual work. Right? It doesn't always like show itself as obvious. And because of this lack of visibility of spiritual work, it makes it by nature at times discouraging because we all want to be able to see some fruit, some reward from our labor. We want to do something and then see something happen because of what we've done. The spiritual work is an invisible work. The work that Jesus does and is doing in people's lives and hearts is often hidden. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You just have to trust that it's happening. But that's not the way we want to be. It's understandable. We want to see the person we're sharing the gospel with come to faith in Christ. We want our kids to see how hard we work to love them, provide for them, and set a good example of faith in Christ. We want the pastor to brag on us in front of the whole church about all the good work we're doing in the ministry or the mission area that we serve in. That's natural. We all want that. We all want to see some result from our hard work and service to Jesus. And when that seems to elude us for what feels like just a little bit too long, we start to think, what's the point of trying if nothing is happening? And every single time that happens, I remember this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is what Paul writes, he says, be steadfast, so, so don't be moved, immovable. Not only that, be growing, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus sees. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he rewards our faithfulness. It's not in vain. Yes, the minor judges were forgotten by the world at large, but their labor was not in vain. It was rewarded and will continue to be rewarded for all of eternity by King Jesus. They died. They were forgotten. But, and this is one of those huge buts, and I cannot lie, that did not mean, did not mean that their lives did not make any difference. So let's quickly wrap up and mention that being minor doesn't mean you don't matter. Listen, to the people that they, these minor judges, and that we, because here's the deal. Here's where I'm going with all this. Everybody in this room, I don't know if this is a surprise to you. I don't mean this offensively. Everybody in this room is a minor person in history. Unless somebody does something stupid in the next you know, few years, right? To be remembered for all of history. The most likely scenario is history will not remember your name. But it doesn't mean you don't matter. And it doesn't mean that God's not giving you something to do. Think about these judges. They, we have the opportunity to affect lots of people. The support that they and we offer people is not forgotten. These minor judges and we, we may not matter to the world, but they and we mean the world to a few people who matter to us. The trajectory of somebody's life was, can be altered upward. The momentum positively transformed because they and we are a part of it. 
And because these minor judges were apparently faithful with the time, talent, and treasure that they had, they really have not actually been forgotten because they are recorded in Scripture. They may have been minor, but being minor didn't mean they didn't matter. And here's the deal, guys. Somebody has done that same thing in your life. There's some minor person who's done the same thing in your life. Nobody will let may ever know their name, but you do. You know the name because your life, your eternity has been altered because of their willingness to be faithful with what they had in your life, right? They shared the gospel with you. Who shared the gospel with you? Who invested time in you? Who loved you when nobody else would? Who was always there for you when the world seemed to turn its back on you? In your own life, there have been major players and minor actors, but they have all contributed to seeing you arrive where you are in life today. Now, the most likely scenario is that your parents, your teachers, and your coaches probably all had huge impacts on you, but there's also been neighbors and friends and colleagues who may have spent what we would deem um, less time with you on screen in the movie of your life, but your story would be incomplete and not anything like what it is today if, it was, if they were not there. I just want to share with you sort of personal example. The people who had the biggest impact on me spiritually were my mom and dad, my former pastor, George Ross, and my neighbor. Some of you don't, some of you don't know. I, I was not a Christian until I was 28 years old, but my, my dad is a pastor, so I grew up in a very faithful home. George Ross was my pastor when I became a Christian, and then there was my neighbor, and my mentor in the faith and the person who was there with me the day that God saved me, his name is Jay Atkins. But you know, the first person to ever share the gospel with me was an insurance salesman named Scott Carter. He was the nephew of my high school football coach, and he stopped in to try and sell some life insurance to my high school football coach, and he wound up sitting with me in a locker trying to sell me some eternal life insurance, trying to get me to convert to Jesus Christ. But he shared the gospel with me that day. Tommy Morton was one of the assistant coaches on my college football team. And he made me, and I want to emphasize, made me go to an FCA rally. And I'll never forget this stuff, a profound impact on me. It was one of the first times I remember really hearing the gospel. I'm sure it had been preached and shared with me before, but it was the first time I really remember hearing the gospel. It's also the place where I saw for the first time the lady who would be my wife. Big impact. Alex Hedgepath was an old man that I met in a geology class when I was in college at Mississippi State. He was in his early 40s. That seemed old at the time. <laughs> For some reason, he felt drawn to me, and he attached himself to me. And when I graduated, I was a teaching and education and coaching major, and you graduate in December, there ain't a whole lot of teaching and coaching jobs in January. And this man started his own company, and hired me in January just so he could spend more time with me, talking with me about Jesus Christ and what it meant to be a godly husband and father. You don't know their names. Maybe you do now, but you didn't. But I do. And if you're here, if you've grown in your walks with Jesus Christ because of anything I've ever said or anything anyone at New Journey has ever said, you owe them an eternal debt of gratitude because there might not have been a new journey if not for their influence and impact on me. They're minor players in my story, but they matter. They matter a lot. 
Heaven will be filled with people nobody knows. But God knows them. (laughs) Heaven's going to be filled with people that nobody knows, but God knows them. And he knows the incredible impression he left on other people in the world through their lives. They may be minor actors in his story, but they are anything but minor in your story. Amen? Listen, make your goal in life then not to be famous or filthy rich, but to be faithful and then be forgotten. What Jesus has done for you is anything but minor, right? Like, they're not writing books about it. They're not making movies about it. But it's anything but minor to you. And you might think the same thing, that your small contribution to the church or the world or your community, it doesn't matter. But you couldn't be more wrong. We looked at a passage last week, Matthew 25, 31 through 40. And in that passage, Jesus noted the ability of God to do the incredible with even the smallest acts of kindness, noting that even a cold drink of water to a thirsty person is able to be used by God to draw people unto himself. Now, here's the fact of the matter. Nobody may ever know that you did it. And the person you did it for may not ever even remember your name. But I think that's the way it's supposed to be. As long as they remember that you did it in the name of Jesus Christ. Because it's his name that is the name above all names. And it is his name that is chanted and sung and repeated in heaven. Amen. Jesus was God in human flesh. You ever thought about this? He lived. He preached the gospel. And he died. But oh, he was not forgotten. Because he's not just human, he's God. And because he's God, he rose from the dead. And because he's risen, we are redeemed. Because he is alive, we too can be. Because he is alive, hope is alive for us. And because he has taken the stinger of death away from it, we no longer fear death. We, We don't like to think about the fact that we're going to die one day. But we need to think about that because we're going to die one day. I don't like to think about paying taxes but I have to pay my taxes. So every once in a while I have to think about, we got to do our taxes. You can't just avoid it forever. But we no longer fear death if we are in Christ because he has taken the power, the stinger, the venom of death away. And we know that one day the newspaper will summarize our life in an obituary. My daddy used to get the paper every day and read the obituary, and I never understood why. And I said, Dad, why do you read the obituaries every single day? And he would always remark, to make sure I'm not in it. (laughs) Remember obituaries in the newspaper? That was a thing. One day the newspaper is going to write an obituary about our life. And no matter what we think we've accomplished or the world thinks what we've accomplished, they will summarize our life into just a handful of words, won't they? Those in Christ don't fret or fear over that. We don't fear that anymore because we know the one who has abolished the power and the fear of death by rising from the dead. We know the one who has abolished the power of death by rising from the dead. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus has put death to death. Paul writes that he abolished it. 
And if you have time this week, I encourage you to go and read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. And if I had to summarize it, I think what Paul says there is that there's no guilt in life. I'm quoting from the song, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The person who believes that Jesus really is risen from the dead, he really was God, he really did die on the cross for their sins, will embrace a life of this. You ready? If you really believe that, you will embrace a life that's about advancing the gospel, dying, and being forgotten. And you're okay with that because you know he never will be. His name never will be. You won't get rich. You won't get noticed by the masses. But you know what you will get to do? One day you'll get to stand before the throne of Jesus and he'll say, well done. Look at me. He'll say, well done. Imagine that. And while the world may not remember your name, in that moment he'll say, well done, and then he'll name you as being among the faithful. And in those moments it will all have been worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in these moments... We ask your Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Convict us of sin. Draw us to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The band's coming on stage. They're going to lead us in a time of response. You guys respond as the Spirit leads. I'll be in the back along with any of our elders. If anybody needs to talk, but you can do business with the Lord right where you're at. You can come here to the front of the room. And it's not an altar. But in a sense, it is an altar because it's a place where we can come and we can lay something down and walk away from it forever. Whatever you need to do, I just pray that the Holy Spirit, if he's prompting you, prodding you to do something, I pray that you'll be obedient as David and the band lead us in a time of response.